Good evening, it's good to be back with you again. I trust that everyone is well rested and ready to hear God's word. Our sermon this evening comes to us from Psalm 91, which can be found on page 497 in the church Bible. This morning we looked at Psalm 86 in book 3 of the Psalter and we saw how it was really a model prayer given to us from God in order to pray during times of affliction. We saw how, or we spoke about how book 3 was really a book of laments from Israel during times of their affliction. Well, book 4, thankfully, is a little more positive than book 3 and we'll see that Here this evening in Psalm 91, it's really a confident declaration of God's protection from danger. And it's almost as if the psalmist in Psalm 91 is turning around to the psalmist in 86 and saying, don't worry, it's going to be okay. The Lord is going to protect you. He's protected me and he'll protect you. Psalm 91 is a word which provides strength to the weak, provides hope to those who need it. And so I invite you uh, to listen to God's word. Please give your attention. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes. At noonday, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Please pray with me. God, our Father, we have gathered again this evening because you have promised us blessing through your word. You have called us to gather together to sing your praises and to bring our petitions before you. Lord, we confess that we are timid. We confess that we lose heart. 
We confess that the dangers of this world intimidate us. So Lord, we're thankful for your word, which reminds us of your great love for us, your great protection provided by your strength. And so we ask that you would open our eyes and ears and hearts to hear and to understand your wonderful truths. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, since the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, mankind has lived in a very threatening world. And the Bible really speaks to us about two basic types of threats. We have both physical threats and spiritual threats in this life. And that's because we're both physical beings and spiritual beings. Theologians like to say that human beings are, are an embodied soul. We're a soul which exists in which in, inside of a physical, a fleshly body. Well, Psalm 91 promises us protection from various threats. Promises us that God will protect us from various threats. And the question we should ask ourselves is, is Psalm 91 speaking about physical threats, or is it speaking about spiritual threats, physical dangers, or spiritual dangers? And I think we can find a key to help us answer that question in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5-7. through seven. Feel free to listen as I read Matthew chapter 4, 5 through 7. Now this is the wilderness temptation of Christ. He's just been anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has led him into the wilderness in order to be tested by Satan. And these are some of the words which Satan speaks to Jesus in the wilderness. Verse 5 starts by saying, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, Satan is quoting verses 11 and 12 from Psalm 91. And the temptation seems rather straightforward on the surface. It's as if Satan is turning to Jesus and saying, Remember Psalm 91? Remember what God promised you in Psalm 91? He was promising you protection from getting injured. And if that's true, prove it. Throw yourself off of this temple and God will send His angels and they'll bear you up unless you strike your foot against a stone. So, of course, Jesus, as we know, responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so Satan's temptation seems rather straightforward. He's trying to get Jesus to put God to the test, but Jesus knows better. He knows God's word. But I want to submit to you that this temptation is more subtle. 
Remember what Genesis 3.1 said about Satan. He said that the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts in the field. And what I think Satan is truly doing here, what he's, what he's really trying to do is he's trying to misapply Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 to a, spiritual, to a physical danger rather than to a spiritual danger. And why do I say that? Well, consider this phrase. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, that seems like a strange verse for Satan to quote. If Christ were to throw himself off the temple, he'd have bigger concerns than breaking his ankle. Is God in Psalm 91 saying that uh, he will send his angels so that Christ doesn't stub his foot on a rock? Well, what does it mean that, that God will protect Jesus from striking his foot against a stone? What does that remind you of? Well, I think he's speaking of a stumbling block. A stumbling stone, which is a metaphor for causing someone else to sin. And notice what Satan's doing. He's, he's taking this spiritual meaning and he's despiritualizing it in order to get Jesus to sin. In order to be the very stumbling block that he's trying to get Christ to overlook. And that's exactly how Satan works. He tries to take our minds off of heavenly realities and distract us with earthly temptations. Consider the rest of the temptations there in the wilderness. He tempted Christ with food. He tempted Him with physical safety, physical well-being, physical health. And He tempted Him with earthly powers. He's tempting Christ with earthly blessings, and that's, that's just what he does, but that's the exact opposite of what Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3 tell us, which say that if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so Psalm 91 is reminding us that because our greatest blessings are spiritual rather than physical, so too are our greatest threats. They're spiritual rather than physical. And Satan wants us to forget that. He wants us to be distracted by physical threats, by physical concerns, so that we forget the heavenly blessings that we have. In verses 3 through 6, in Psalm 91, we're really given a description of these spiritual threats, and we're given by way of metaphor. In verse 3, the psalmist says, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Well, to be honest, I had to look up what a fowler was. I wasn't quite sure. Um, it's a bird hunter. 
It's somebody who hunts birds. And this is a metaphor for Satan. And it's really telling us what the fundamental relationship is that we have to Satan. He is a hunter, and we are his prey. And as with any hunter, Satan has one goal. That's to catch his prey and to kill it. And we know that Satan is very good at what he does. Remember that he is the craftiest of all the beasts in the field. He's skilled. He's knowledgeable. He studies his prey. He knows what makes us tick. He knows our comings and our goings. He knows where to place his trap. And he knows which trap to use. And that's a scary thought. And it should be a scary thought. But perhaps the scariest aspect of this relationship that we have to Satan is the snare itself, the fowler's snare. Because like any good snare, the way it works is when you're trapped in a snare, you can't get out on your own. If a snare is working the way it's supposed to, you can't get out without help. And that's the way Satan's snares work as well. And the implication of verse 3 is that either we're presently caught in Satan's snare, or at some point in the future, we will be caught in Satan's snare. But the good news, the promise of God is that the Lord will deliver us from His snares if we turn to Him when we call on Him, and He alone can do that. Well, we go on in our passage here, in verses 3-6, through and we're given two more threats. And these are really contrasting threats, and they're also given by way of metaphor. We're told of the terror of the night, the pestilence, that stalks in darkness. And this is really a hidden threat. It's a threat which we can't see. It's not obvious. And I think it's speaking about indwelling sin. It's the sin which resides in our own hearts. We don't always see it, but we know it's there. It's easily concealed. And he speaks about the arrow that flies by day and the destruction which wastes at noonday. These are the visible threats. These are the obvious threats. The arrows which fly by day versus the pestilence at night. The destruction that wastes at noonday versus the terror of the night. Well, what is the terror of the night exactly? The deadly pestilence. Well, we know that it's indwelling sin. It's the sin in our hearts. And the question we should ask is, why is it called a pestilence? Why does the Bible, why does the book of Leviticus describe the sin which dwells in our hearts as a pestilence? And we should be able to answer that question rather easily these days, given the experience that we've had over the last few years. We know a few things about pestilence, don't we? We know that it can be deadly. We know that it spreads 
We know that it can be hard to detect and difficult, if not impossible, to control. And like a terror in the night, it can produce extreme fear. But Psalm 91 tells us two things about the pestilence. Two things about the sin which dwells in our hearts. The first thing it tells us is that the sin in our hearts is not benign. If left unmediated, it has the power to kill. We can't ignore the sin in our own heart. But it tells us something else. Psalm 91 tells us in verse 5 that we should not fear the sin in our own heart. Because if we're in Christ, He is our mediator. He is mediating that sin. And that ultimately, the sin which still dwells in our, whole, in our own heart, if we're in Christ, it cannot ultimately harm us. What about the arrow which flies by day, the destruction which wastes at noonday? Well, these are the obvious threats. These are the threats that we can see. I think it's speaking of the sins of others, the sin which is around us, which is visible, perhaps the sin of our culture. And we're living in a culture which sins openly and unashamedly. And it would be easy to look around and think that we're living in an unprecedented time of sin. And in one sense, in this nation, we are. But in another sense, there's nothing new under the sun. God's people, the nation Israel, were surrounded by pagan nations that lived in open idolatry in open and unashamed wickedness. God's people have always been surrounded by evildoers, surrounded by the arrows which fly by day and the destruction that wastes at noonday. And that can be scary. It can be scary when we look around and we see what's happening in this society. But perhaps scarier than that for God's people is when the arrows start to fly inside the church. When the destruction which wastes at noonday is not just out there, but it's come in here. And again, it's easy for us to think when this happens that we're living in an unprecedented time of church history. But remember that there were times where Israel worshipped false idols. There were times where Israel committed adultery and fornication. There were times where Israel sacrificed their own children to false gods. And so we see that the sins of others have always threatened God's people. Sometimes from a distance, sometimes in her own backyard. There are really two dangers of the visible threats which surround us. Two ways in which the arrows which fly by day and the destruction at noonday can hurt us. It's through assimilation 
and through desperation. And through assimilation, we can grow numb to the sin which surrounds us. We can start to adopt it without even thinking about it. But we can also see the sin which surrounds us. We can see the sins of others and we can lose heart. We can become despairing. We can lose hope. But both of these dangers really serve Satan's end in the same way. They distract us from heavenly realities. And this is one of the things that the parable of the sower teaches us. If you remember the parable, it's about the sower who goes out with seed, and the seed represents the Word of God, and it's tossed on several different types of soil. And one of the soils on which it falls is good soil, and so the seed takes root and it sprouts up, but it sprouts up among thorns, which choke out the Word. And Jesus says that the thorns represent the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And the Word proves unfruitful. See, it's not just the pleasures of the world which are tempting for us, but it's the concerns of the world as well. And we see this every four years when we elect a new president, don't we? It's easy to become consumed by who we think should be our next leader. And it's not wrong to be involved in the government. I think we're encouraged to do that. But there's a way that we can place an unhealthy amount of hope in our next presidential candidate. Dare I say a sinful amount of hope in our next presidential candidate. But the truth is that we have a king already who is reigning in heaven, who is perfect and almighty and all-powerful. And so we can hope with great confidence in him. And he tells us to abide in him. In Psalm 91, he says, Abide in me, and you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. He says, abide in me and you will not fear. He says, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. We should expect to see people fall around us. And although that's a terrifying thing to see, the Lord tells us not to fear. Well, we're led to a similar conclusion in Psalm 91 that we were in Psalm 86 this morning. And that's because the language of Psalm 91 is absolute, it's a language of certainty. 
A language of absolute protection, of certain protection from spiritual threat. But the truth is that this promise of protection from our vantage point doesn't match perfectly, does it? See, the psalm promises perfect protection from the fowler's snare, from the pestilence, from the arrows and the destruction. And yet these threats still affect us, don't they? And so we might be led to consider, is this our psalm? Are these our promises? Are they really true for me? Well, if you were here this morning, I hope that you know where I'm going with this. Have you ever considered that Psalm 91 was first given to Christ before it was given to us? You see, Jesus was the Son of God, but He was also an Israelite. He was a faithful Israelite. The Gospel of Luke tells us that He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, and He did so by studying God's Word. He would have read Psalm 91. He would have believed Psalm 91, and he would have remembered it when he was tempted by Satan. He would have remembered God's promise to protect him from the deadly pestilence. His promise that the indwelling sin of others would not infect his own heart. He would have believed God's promise to protect him from the arrow and the destruction at noonday, that the sin which surrounded him would not cause him to stumble. And he would have remembered and believed God's promise to deliver him from Satan's ultimate snare, death itself. Well, consider, consider the metaphor of the fowler's snare. The relationship that we have to Satan. He is a bird hunter and we are birds. Did you notice in verse 4 that God is described as a bird? I think it's pointing to the fact that the Son of God became a man and He did what we could not. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget that the Son of God fulfilled the covenant of works as a man. He did what Adam could not do. He did what we could not do. And He did this to obtain a righteousness which He Himself did not need. It's a righteousness which you yourself cannot obtain. But it's a righteousness which He gives to you by grace through faith. If you turn to Him and take hold of Him and believe in His promises, you will be righteous before God. And that's why in verse 4 it says that His faithfulness is our shield and buckler. Not our faithfulness, but His faithfulness. And so it's only in Him that these promises are yours. I'd like to conclude 
by way of application. How are we to apply these promises to our life in Christ? How are we to receive these promises, to lay hold of them? The HMS Bounty was a tall ship replica of the original Bounty uh, in the 1800s, 1700s. And in 2012, as Category 4 Hurricane Sandy was heading towards the New England coast, uh, the Bounty was docked in Connecticut. And she decided to set sail for Florida. And the plan was to sail out and around Hurricane Sandy and to come in below it. And the captain had a deadline that he wanted to make, and so he thought that this would be a prudent move. Well, they ended up directly in the storm's path, right in the middle of Hurricane Sandy. And the bounty sank. One of the crew members and the captain were lost at sea. Well, you can read a 20-page Coast Guard report on what happened. And the report will detail a number of things which went wrong. For instance, uh, it was a wooden ship and it was rather old and so it would naturally take on water. That's not surprising. But one of the generators which was used to pump out the water failed and so it was unable to keep up with the water that was coming in. On top of that, there were a number of injuries that the crew sustained. They were growing fatigued after fighting the storm for days on end. And there's a long list of things which went wrong leading to its sinking. But if you read the Coast Guard report, you'll find that they cite one primary reason for the disaster, which is that the boat left the safety of the harbor. And ultimately, the captain was found at fault, and he was charged with the death of his crew. Well, why do I tell you the story? I think it's a good illustration of the conditions of God's protection. Not the conditions of his love, that's unconditional, but the condition of God's protection, which he tells us in verses 1 and verse 9. He says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. In verse 9 it says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, The Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. You see, God promises, promises protection for those who are dwelling in Him. Jesus lived a life without sin because He made the Lord His dwelling place. Well, how do we do that? How do we make the Lord our dwelling place? We turn to Him in love. Turn to God in love. Verses 14 through 16 says, Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him because He knows my name. When He calls to me, I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. 
I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see, the only thing which separates us from God's protection is our own sinful heart. But Psalm 91 promises us, promises us that if we turn to him, he will protect us from sin, both now and eternally. Please pray with me. Lord, we are thankful for the ways that you protect us from sin, the ways that we don't even recognize. Lord, we confess that we turn from you, that we expose ourselves to the sin of this world, that we delight in the sin which is in our heart more than we delight in you. And so we ask that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would continue to strengthen our love for you, that we might dwell in you, that we might live lives which are more and more glorifying to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.